What I wanted to talk about this morning, and I'll try to make it shorter um, than I did, I can't guarantee it. You know, we have an expression, bleeder without a vow. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I won't vow to make it shorter, but I'll try. Um, and it doesn't have to be. We'll see how it goes. Um, I, I talked a little about the Kabbalah, or Kabbalah, depending on how you like to pronounce it, last night. And, um, of course, living in the city of Tzfat, which is where the Kabbalah exists from and originated from, when I look out of my salon window every day, but more so on Shabbos, it just amazes me to this day. You know, Lori will look at me sometimes and she says to me, is it still surreal for you? And, and I said, yeah, in many ways it is still surreal. I walk outside of my merpeset or I look out at the salon and I look out at Mount Meron, which is where the kever, where the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai is, who wrote the Zohar. And then I walk, you know, through the old city and uh, want to go down to the artist quarter and I walk by the, um, the apple orchard, what's called the apple orchard, where the Arizal, the Ari HaKodesh, wrote his commentary to the Zohar and the Ari Ashkenazi Synagogue, and then right in front of the Ari Ashkenazi Synagogue, which also overlooks Mount Meron, is where Kabbalat Shabbat, the Friday night service, and where Lecha Dodi was written, right there. I'm standing there, and when, I, when guests come and friends come to visit, and I share, share them with that, I mean, I, 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 I'm still amazed that I get to live there, and then people are like, really? I mean, I'm standing in the place where the Ari wrote his... His, his commentary, or I'm standing in the place where Kabbalat Shabbat started and L'Chadodi was written, um, because as people come to this, come to Torah Judaism and they start learning more and more, and, and, and I hear about that all the time, you know, many of you are probably like Facebook friends, uh, shout out to Ida, Ida Blum, you know, who's also on this, on this journey with you, you know, and Ida goes to a, a synagogue and, you know, hears the the songs, you know, the sounds of Lachadodi, such a, you know, a beautiful melody that we sing every Friday night, ushering in the Sabbath, welcoming the Sabbath queen. Um, so, so it is an amazing place. And I wanted to talk about it because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about Kabbalah. Um, there are misunderstandings about it, even within Judaism. And, of course, in the same way that there are people that push back against the kind of teaching that I do and the kind of teaching that Rabbi Katz and, and, and Chaim Chlorfein and, and uh, Rav Sutton and Rav Greenbaum and so forth, all of this pushback we get is not just about teaching Torah to the nations, but Kabbalah. You, you want to teach Kabbalah? I mean, Judaism teaches that a man has to be 40 years old before you can even discuss it. The reason why I wanted to talk about it is because I get asked about this all the time. And, and the only concern that I ever have about it is in the same way that I talked about people, um, I mentioned that there are people that come out, out of Christianity or come out of some form of idolatry, whether it's Islam or Christianity, and they come to me and now they're suddenly experts, you know, and they look at somebody like me or they look at somebody like Rabbi Katz or the other, the other teachers that are out there trying to teach the nations, and they ignore the fact that, hey, we might have a little bit more knowledge and wisdom than they do as it relates to the Jewish sages and what the, the texts say, but now suddenly they become experts, you know, and they have their own journeys. 
because they go through, and many of you might have as well gone through that process of what I call the Tanakh-only crowd. You come out of Christianity and you say, well, I don't want to follow those rabbis. That's just the opinion of men. Um, I'm going to read the Tanakh, and it's Tanakh only for me. And then little by little, you gain, you move from what we talked about last night, that position of knowledge, to a position of wisdom. There's one thing knowing something, and there's another thing having impartation of wisdom. This is what we're trying to do. I'm not saying that we're, uh, you know, such great men that we have more wisdom than, than the sages or that we have more wisdom than you. I believe that every one of us has the ability to impart wisdom to people, and that's what I'm saying. Don't be a people that simply uh, follow a, a path of knowledge, but try to impart wisdom to people. The practical example is that that person that walks out of a Sunday church service, I can walk up to and I can say, so how was your service today? And they go, oh, wow, the service was awesome. The music was incredible. The pastor's message was just off the charts. Really? Well, what do you talk about? And then you hear silence. So what they received maybe was knowledge. But if that pastor had imparted wisdom, they would have walked out and they would have remembered something. There would have been something that hit them in the heart that changed them and something that they would be able to have walked out of that service from and said, I now have some type of tool to help me in my daily life out there. And that's what I just said to, to Ross, you know, just as we were talking before we started this morning, I said, if I stood up here for an hour and a half like I did last night and you walked out of here and somebody walked up to you and said, what was Ira's message about? And it wasn't something that struck you, something that you could repeat to them to, to take, then I wasted an hour and a half of your time and an hour and a half of my time. Okay? And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So, so, so coming back to that question that I get about, well, well what about Kabbalah? Because people say that to me all the time. They go, well, you know, I hear about this, and I, and I want to read the Zohar, I want to read the, the Ari's uh, commentary, or so forth, and all I say to them is this, are you such an expert yet in Tanakh and in Torah that you feel that you can now move on to the next level? <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it, but I want to try and discuss this morning how I think the proper way to do it is, in the same way to make a proper connection with Hashem, proper connection with Torah, how to make a proper connection with Kabbalah, and how that relates to you, those of you that are both Jewish, and those of you more specifically from the nations, and show you how, where I touched on a little bit last night, that some of the sages actually got it. You know, uh, Rabbi Katz always likes to talk about I get gear or that guy gets gear. And, 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 I, and I love that because when I, was, when I was preparing for this, I was actually reading from the Sulam. The Sulam, Sulam in Hebrew means ladder. And the Sulam was a name given to Rav Ashlag. And Rav Ashlag is one of the modern day main Kabbalists of our time that wrote in the shadow of the ladder. Now, the English translation of that was actually translated by a friend of mine and a friend of Lori's, uh, Yadida Cohen, with her, uh, her uh, husband, uh, Mark Cohen, Alava Shalom, who's not with us anymore. Um, he, he, um, he passed away several years ago. 
but both Mark and Yadida Cohen were the main translators of Rav Ashlag's work. And uh, I was reading the Sulam, and <clears throat> I started reading uh, what he was talking about in one in uh, one particular section, and and I looked at it and I said, he gets gear. <laughs> the Sulam got gear, and and I don't think he just got gear. I think he was talking about gear, but he was talking about gear as it relates to to the Jew. And this is why, I, when I read that, I, I say we're all gerim, you know. Uh, Rabbi Katz talks about David Amelech being ger, and, and all the different people that, that would have been considered ger. So in that way, we're all gerim today in, in, uh, in what I talk about. And so the question goes something like this. The question goes something like this. Didn't the sages of Judaism already decide that before studying Kabbalah, a person must first fill his belly with um, the study of Talmud and Jewish law. Okay, this is where that concept of, you know, man being a certain age, being 40 years old, you know, before he should even touch the Kabbalah. And if this is the case, um, then the next question is, how does this affect someone that's not Jewish? Because if it's talking about Talmud and Jewish law, well, look, there are rabbis out there that are saying, wait a minute. You're trying to teach them what? I mean, you know, seven go to heaven. That's it. They're not allowed to do anything but seven. The Sheva mitzvahs and, and that's it. Um, of course, you know that that's not our position. And it can also be said <clears throat> that it can cause a person to go off the path. We talked about two paths last night. We talked about the path of suffering. The two, uh, and, and what we titled the message last night was, two paths to illumination. There's the path of suffering and there's the path of Torah. Both of them, one of them sounds bad, one of them sounds good, they're both good. Okay, both the path of suffering and the path of Torah are both good when you get it because both of them are meant to bring illumination. Um, the Kabbalah also meant to bring illumination. I don't like the word mysticism. Okay, and this is one of the problems. People talk about Kabbalah and the first thing that they say is, well, that's mystical Judaism. And, and mysticism has this connotation of negativity um, because we have New Age and we have all these things. What, what you have to, and we'll talk about this a little further down, but what you have to understand is, and I think Yadida speaks about it in a wonderful way because we had her on the show um, before we brought back Beyond the Matrix when we were doing the show on Arud Sheva, Rod and I had Yadida on the show, and we talked about it. And the way she described it was that the Kabbalah reveals the intentions of the Torah. Okay? Intentions. That's a, that's a very, very significant difference between thinking of something as being mystical and in thinking intentions. It reveals the intentions of the Torah. That's what it's meant to do. So that when you look at the concept of Pardis, when you look at the concept of Peshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod, and you look at Sod being that secret, mystical thing, really what Sod is is meant to reveal the intentions of the Torah. Because it's not clear when we're looking at it. There are times when we read the Torah, even somebody like me who's been reading it for years and years and years and years, that looks at it and says, I don't understand. What, what, yeah, I see the Peshat, but it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I, 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 when I teach on these things, like 
like the para aduma, for instance, the red heifer. I call, the, I call that a head scratcher. You know, why do I call it a head scratcher? Because how is it that something that's meant to cleanse um, somebody makes somebody impure? You know, so you read that, and every year you, you learn more and more about it. And so the point of the para aduma, when you get into it from a Kabbalistic uh, standpoint, what it's meant to do is reveal the intention. Now what you start to learn is, okay, there's a reason for this. There's a reason why something that is meant to, to impart purity somehow imparts impurity to the person who prepares the ashes of the red heifer. But that's not what the message is about today. Just trying to give you uh, an example. So why, the, the next question is, why am I speaking about this? And I'm speaking about this because it's important that everyone understands the truth as opposed to what the world accepts, okay? Because when you think about Kabbalah today, what's the first thing that would come to the average person's mind? Oh, that's that Madonna stuff. You know, that's like wearing a red string on your, you know, or, or the way we grew up where your grandmother drove by something and went poo-poo, you know, <laughs> spit. Because, you know, it was like uh, this, uh, this idea of, you know, that uh, this should never happen to us, you know. Um, and this is what the world thinks about when they think of Kabbalah. And there's all kinds of Kabbalah out there. But there's the real and there's the phony. There's, there's Kabbalah that's meant to reveal the intentions of the Torah. And then there's the Kabbalah that's no different than, than the emotional experiences that we talked about related to the world religions that some of you have come out of. You know, anything that doesn't impart wisdom, anything that's only meant to make you feel good, is phony. Uh, because it's not about feeling good. It's about receiving, it's about illumination, like we talked about last night. So, more importantly, there are questions that are asked by every human being regardless of their religious affiliation. And every one of us have asked ourselves this question, and we might even still be asking ourselves the question, what is the point of my life? Why am I here? What is life about? You know, we, we always, you know, you always see that, that kind of question asked, you know, why am I here? What is my life about? So forth and so on. Why do we live the lives we do? Why do we have the path of suffering? Why do we have the path of Torah? Why do we oftentimes live through great pain and suffering? Do I really enjoy my life? And finally, is there anyone that benefits from my life? That's the point that I was talking about last night, of being willing to walk the path of suffering, to be that olive, that thing that's bitter when you take it off the tree, and you, and you bite into an olive, most people don't know the first time they take an olive off a tree, they're expecting an olive to taste like the olive they take out of a can or the jar, and they bite into it and they spit it out because it's terrible. It's terrible if you take an olive right off the tree. But once you crush that olive and, and you smash it, it produces this incredible oil that was used to light the menorah in the temple, and it produces this great flavor um, that we use to cook with, and if it's brined, then it produces this great thing that we all eat at our Shabbos table or, or whenever. So you see the difference between the two. So first I want to speak about Hashem and how He is the universal God. 
how he's everybody's God. Um, he's not just the God of the Jews, but he's everybody's God. A Kabbalistic insight into who God is, where God is, and what, hi, what God has to do with you. Everybody talks about God these days. Uh, we see it in the concept of intelligent design, and we see it in context, context of atheism. Even the atheists are talking about God, and they don't even believe in God. You know, and then there's the Darwinists, and, and, and everyone seems to, to have an opinion about God. Okay? And this is where we talked about knowing, like Rod talked about his own journey, knowing God. A lot of people believe in God. A lot of people have faith in God. But do they trust God and do they know God? That's the difference. Emunah bitachon, faith and trust. Two different concepts in Judaism. <clears throat> but when we talk about God... Do we really know who or what we're talking about when we talk about him? And if we do, does that mean that those that oppose us do not know what they're talking about? So uh, a question comes up. Why should I assume that I have a better understanding of something neither I nor those who challenge me can vividly perceive? I mean, really, think about this. Um, even when we talk about knowing God, we're talking about the creator of the universe here. Uh, when we got back to the house last night, we were talking about this, and it still amazes me to this day that when I think about this concept, um, and, and many of you might have learned the Kabbalistic concept of Tsimsum, Simsum is the Kabbalistic concept of contraction. And Simsum is, when you think about God, the creator of the universe, Hashem, however we want to describe him, we're talking about an entity that doesn't need anything. God doesn't need to sleep. God doesn't need to eat. God doesn't need us. But the creator of the universe, who, who was the universe, at one point outside of time, I can't even say at one point in time, because he exists outside of time, but at some point decided to contract himself to make room for creation. That still boggles my mind. A creator of the universe who doesn't need anything, doesn't require anything, made room for creation in order to create not only a universe, but to create people in order to interact with. And so then you want to tell me that you, you, those who oppose me or even those who believe like me, that we can sit here and we can say um, that we know better than the next guy or perceive better the concept of God, the concept of Hashem. The only thing that you can do, I, I talked to a rabbi the other day on the phone, 81 years old, and I was talking to him on the phone, and he said, you know this. And I said, Rabbi, let me tell you what I do know. I said, I'm 59 years old, and I've come to the conclusion at 59 that the only thing I know for sure is that I know nothing. That's what I can know for sure. Other things I kind of think I know about. But the only thing that I know for sure is that I know nothing. The other thing that I've learned at 59 years old 
is that the older I get, the smarter my parents get. Okay? And, and a lot of you might, you know, understand what I'm talking about. And those of you that have children that are still raising children, you have hope. As they grow, they'll learn that you're smarter than they are. And, uh, you know, when they learn is when they have kids of their own. <laughs> then they learn how smart you were raising them. The wisdom of Kabbalah and scripture offers an original resolution to the relentless debate about these questions about God. That's why I talk about it. And that's why I talk about it, not just to the Jew, but to the non-Jew as well. And the Kabbalists use this particular verse, which I think is great. Um, I love this verse. Um, and the Sulam talks about it. I didn't know when I was reading the Sulam and thought this would really be a great thing to talk about at Nativ in Houston, um, that some of the other Kabbalists brought this in as well. And so when I started doing my research, it's from Tehillim, from Psalm 34.9, where it says, Taste and see that Hashem is good. And then it goes on to say, Happy is the man that takes refuge in him. Taste and see, or as the Kabbalists put it, taste and see that Hashem is good. This statement doesn't mean that we have to blindly accept that He is good. On the contrary, it means that we have to taste of Hashem for ourselves, and then we can see. It's kind of like the concept of standing at Har Sinai and saying, Na Sevenishma. Na sevenishna. We will do, and then we'll understand. It's the idea of tasting first, and then you'll see. Then you'll know. Then you'll understand. Then you'll have knowledge. Then wisdom will be imparted to you. The way this is done in Judaism is by people who connect with Torah and mitzvot. We talked about that last night. The connection has to be about Torah and mitzvot in the proper way. And then the Kabbalists add their own opinion that he tastes good through that connection of Torah and mitzvot. There's a famous Zen riddle that says, and we all know this one, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to witness it, does it still make a sound? Similarly, in what I'm talking about, until you personally experience the Creator, you can't attest to his existence, and you certainly cannot know what he wants of you. This is what, we're, what they're talking about, the Kabbalists, when they say, taste and see that Hashem is good. Kabbalah explains that our perception of the world around us is an aggregation of impressions of our five sen senses. Our taste, our touch, our smell, all of the five senses. This is why different people in, interpret similar events in different ways. Remember we talked about the concept of just like last night? That just like can mean several things. That chair is just like that chair. But you can also just say just like, and it can mean something completely different. I can say this chair is just like that chair because they're both chairs. 
but they're not like each other because that's a different style chair than this chair over here. So you get that. It's that same kind of concept. This idea that we can all interpret according to our own senses. For one, for one person, an evening in a good restaurant with soft music and ambiance, for them that's the height of pleasure. For me, it doesn't do anything for me. Why? Because I'm a trained chef. And I'm going to be critical, and the music isn't going to help if the service is bad, and if the chicken comes out and it's undercooked, or it's overcooked and it tastes like leather, my whole experience is off. It's not about that for me. For me, it's sitting at home with my wife at the table and me cooking, no matter how much I, pain I'm in, because for me, it's therapy. So you see, that's different. For you, it might be just that. It might be going out with your husband or your wife to a nice restaurant and hearing nice music and having a time away from the kids or whatever it is. We, we all experience things in a different way. Which one of them is right? That's the question we have to ask. Just as our perception of the physical world is totally subjective, our perception of the Creator is subjective and undeliverable. Because we all perceive things in a different way. You, there are people out there, there are so many different sects of Judaism, for instance. You don't think each one of them has a different perception of the Creator? You have Rav Greenbaum that visits here off the time, off, oftentimes, and I'm sure he speaks about Hidbodadut and the idea of personal prayer. There are other um, sects of Judaism that don't, don't necessarily believe in that. They don't believe in Hidbodadut. They don't believe in a time of personal prayer, putting yourself away in, uh, in a place to, to spend time with the Creator. They believe that it's enough to daven three times a day and to daven with kavana and, you know, or intent. Again, that, that idea of intention. This is why the Kabbalists recommend that we check it out for ourselves. In other words, I can't go to Ross and say to Ross, Ross, can you kind of explain to me, God, you know, can you, can you give me your understanding of God? Because I want to know God. I want to I understand God. Now, every one of us, Rod can stand up here, I can stand up here, every rabbi that comes up, here can stand up here and can tell you what we talk about knowledge wisdom illumination all these things but i can't teach you how to know god i can't teach you how to know god i can give you the tools that i think will help you on the path and the journey towards you having your own experience through your own perceptions to know god but i can't teach you how to know god that's undeliverable but but Kabbalah is part of that equation and part of the tools that I think everybody needs in order to take the next step in their journey. And this includes the ger, to me. To encourage us, the Kabbalists also offer their impressions of their own experience of God. Now you can do that, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be the same for you, that he is good and he does good to his creations. Now, I can say that, but until you taste him for yourself and you experience that, you're not going to know that. You're not going to know that for yourself. I can tell you that because I believe it, but I don't just believe it. I know it because I've seen it manifest in my own life that not only is he good, but he does good to his creation. 
why would he why would he contract himself and make space for creation and create something outside of himself to interact with something outside of himself unless he wanted to do good he's certainly not going to uh, uh, be this uh, this mean judgmental God that some people put out there. I mean, do you really think that he contracted himself, doesn't need anything, and yet creates something and wants to interact with something outside of himself just to, to judge them and destroy them? And say, if you don't do this, this is what you, 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 you have to look forward to? This is why I talked about last night the idea that that gold and that copper that covers the altar doesn't impart impurity to the wood that's underneath it. That each one of us is sanctuaries and we have an outer skin, but inside we have sacred holy vessels that are impossible to make impure. Sure, you go out and you transgress. Sure, you go out and you sin. Sure, you go out and do things that are not right. But it doesn't impart impurity to you to the point that you're separated from God. The Kabbalists go on to say that he's so good that he wants us, he wants to give us everything he has. That he wants to give us his very existence, his very self. He wants us, he wants to make us similar to him. Have you ever heard of the content? We talk about the Eitz Chaim last night and the Sephirot, the attributions of God, the emanations of God. He wants us, or you, you've heard the term midot, okay? These characteristics or attributes, working on our midot. We want to work on those. Why? Not to be like, I don't want to be like Ross. I don't want to be like any of you. You're wonderful people, but I don't want to be anything like you. I want to be like him. I want to manifest him. Because then when I manifest him, when I, when I become a person of chokhmah, of wisdom, a person of binah, of understanding, a person of chesed and gevura and of netzach and hod and malchut and all of the attributes of God, then I illuminate the world. And they see Hashem in me and they want it for themselves. They then want, they don't want to taste Ira and see that Ira is good. They want to taste Hashem and they want to see that he is good when we do that. The sages have taught that God's intention there's that word again, intention, in creating the world was to benefit his creatures. Notice that they don't say to benefit the Jews. This is the Kabbalist speaking. That he, 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 his intention in creating the world was to benefit his creatures. Not just the Jews. Every single person that was created is one of God's creatures. And he created in order to benefit each one of us. Thus, based on that, it's really possible for someone who has not yet tasted the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot, it's a question. Can you experience Hashem? Can you understand and experience that God is good if you've not yet experienced the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot? But the definitive statement is the one that I made earlier, which is in the proper or in the correct way. And the answer is no. It's impossible. 
the solution that the Kabbalah offers to the debate on God's essence is unique in the sense that it doesn't necessarily provide answers. It doesn't provide answers, but it provides the MO, the modus operandi, for developing your own perception and your own answers. That's the point. It's not about me giving you the answers. It's not about you giving somebody else answers. Somebody asked the question last night about their neighbors. How do I approach my neighbors and talk to them? And I said, you don't. You don't, because until your neighbor comes to you and asks the question, there's no point in trying to share anything. And the thing is that you can only, ex you can only share your own, and I hate to use that word experience, but when I say experience, you can only sh share your own experience as it relates to your tasting of Hashem and seeing that He is good through the fulfillment of Torah and mitzvot in the proper way. Jew or non-Jew. They go on to promise that if you are persistent, you will discover and experience the Creator even more vivid, vividly than you experience this world. That blows my mind. <laughs> you know, because we talk about physicality versus something that's beyond physicality. But this is what the Kabbalah teaches, and I think it's important. Because I want to experience that. I want to know that. I want to have that kind of w wisdom. I want to have that kind of shefa, that flow from above and that light, and be a vessel of light in a way that that happens. That I experience Hashem as vividly as I experience the physicality of the world outside. It's written in the book of Z in the Zohar. It was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the city of Tzfat from Tazria, from the Torah portion of Tazria. That all the worlds, both the, both the upper and lower, are included within man. And the whole of reality is made only for man, created for our needs. Again, you notice how it doesn't say for the Jew? It says that all the worlds upper and lower are included within man, and the whole of reality is made only for man, created for our needs. This is what it's talking about related to Hashem contracting himself, creating for the benefit of his creatures. And so the same applies to our perception of the Creator. It's within us already. The perception of the Creator is within us. It's a matter of tapping into that. So the question is, how do we do that? We have no idea what he is like outside of us. That's, what we, that's the knowledge and the wisdom that we have to gain. That if the Kabbalists are right in what they're saying to us, is that we have no idea what he is like outside of us. We have to look within us. Or that he even exists outside of us. Because all the worlds, upper and lower, according to them, are included within us. Meaning that he gave us the ability to, he gave us the ability to manifest those attributes. He gave us the ability to, to manifest teferet, beauty, and chesed, loving kindness, and chokhmah, wisdom, and ta'at, knowledge, and binah, understanding. He gave us the ability all those upper and lower worlds are within us. It's a matter of us tapping into that. And that goes back to the two paths of illumination. 
the path of Torah and the path of suffering. If we follow the lo- this line of thought, arguing about God becomes absurd. Because all we can know of him is the way we subjectively perceive him. And if we subjectively perceive him outside of ourselves, then the argument goes on and on and on and on. Because I can say I know him this way, you can say I know him that way. And the point is he wants us all to know him the same way because he imparted himself within us. He imparted all the upper and lower worlds within us. So each one of us have the ability to manifest only his attributes. You can't manifest attributes different than I can. It's impossible. At best, we can suggest to others a route that we think is correct, which is what I'm trying to do last night and today, which is what every man that stands up here and tries to teach you tries to do. But choosing the route is always your decision. And what you discover is strictly your own. But if you're willing to implement the concept, you'll find that in the end, your perception can't be any different than mine. Because if we all have the same thing in us, if he's within us, if the upper and lower worlds are within us, then if we're willing to do the work, we eventually come to the the idea that we're, we're no different, that our perceptions of Hashem can't be any different. Right now, it's only different because each one of us is at a different stage in the journey. That's why at the end, there will be no difference in perception. In the day of Mashiach, in that day when we all become Israel, it won't be an issue because we will all perceive Hashem in the same way. The point is to do the work now and not wait. Why wait? Try to manifest that, that, that perception now, not for your sake, but for their sake. You took the, the time to sit here today. But there are people that are out there, you know, and this may sound like a very Christian thing to say, but there are people that are lost and dying that are driving down the street right now. And they are. Why? Because that's not a Christian concept. It's a Jewish concept. They need Hashem. They need to know that Hashem exists within them because they're creatures. They're not just Jews. They're creatures. Each one of them were created with the same spark that you were created with. We spoke about it, that every neshama, every soul originated from under the Kisei HaKavod, the throne of glory. If they're exactly like you are, then everything that the Kabbalists say that is within you is within them. And they need you for that reason. So, you can sit back and you can say, well, if we're all going to perceive God in the same way in the end, then I'll just sit here and wait. No. Start doing the work and maybe you won't get there. We won't all get there before Mashiach comes, but at least we will help others to come to that understanding and that perception for themselves to to, to themselves start working on understanding and perceiving God from within. However, Even if the route is the same, the experience along it are different. We all experience different things. We all have things that are totally totally subjective and, and inexpressible. The obvious conclusion is that we can speak the same language, experience the same events, and still lead individual lives. And we do. 
I live in Svat, you some of you live in Umbel, some of you live somewhere else. We all look different. You know, we all dress different. We all talk different. Um, I think it's funny. Uh, I got asked uh, when I went back to uh, my shul in uh, Florida for Shabbos a few weeks ago, the first uh, week we got in and went to Shabbos, the president of the shul said, it would be really touching for us if you would do the bracha for the state of Israel, Medinat Yisrael. There's a blessing that we have in the Siddur, uh, a blessing over Israel. And since you came from Sfat, we'd like you to do the blessing. And so I did the, the blessing uh, from Indinat Yisrael. And one of the women sitting in front of my wife turned around and she said to my wife, and they know us, you know, for years. She said, do you talk like that too? Do you, do you have that Hebrew accent now? You know, now this is a Jewish person that, that speaks Hebrew, but because I speak more with a, an Israeli accent now when I speak Hebrew, to her it, it, it sounded totally different. So, you know, Ross sounds different than I do. I sound different. I'm a kid from Brooklyn, from the streets. He's from wherever he's from. Texas. He's from Texas. I get off the plane and my wife makes fun of me. My wife grew up in Massachusetts and Wisconsin. She can hang out with people from Wisconsin, and after a couple of days, she's saying, no's and toes. <laughs> and me, I get off the plane, and I start hanging out with my friends, and they're like, hey, how are you doing? And they, hey, oh. And then she makes fun of me. Forget about it. And our relationships with our Hashem are no exception to this rule, that we all experience Him in a different way. And this is why, at the end of the day, he's everybody's God. That even though we have individual personalities, because he's within us, because he contracted himself, because he allowed all the upper and lower worlds to be within us, to manifest those attributes, those midot, all of those things, to be just like him, it doesn't matter that we sound different. It doesn't matter that we dress different. It doesn't matter that I'm from Brooklyn and you're from Texas and, and, and I'm from Svat and you still live in America. We all are the same when it comes to this. And to reach the goal of our creation, the reason for which he created us, we must become like him. Therefore, in the end, he will be everybody's and everybody will be like him. And this can only be accomplished through Torah and mitzvot. Only. We see this in the verse in the Torah in Devarim, in Deuteronomy 30.15. See, I have set before you this day life and good or death and evil. Rashi, the great Torah commentator, says, I teach that you choose the portion of life. And he says, where is free choice? If a father places his hand over the best choice, of his inheritance, and if Hashem places his hand and places us over the best part of inheritance, where does our free, free choice come? Where does free will come from in that, if everything's already set the way it's supposed to be set? I spoke towards the end of my presentation last night about what the purpose of each of us is, both Jew and non-Jew, who seeks to connect Hashem in the correct manner or way. In the future to come, the preoccupation of humanity will be exclusively to know God as the water covers the sea. We use that 
that Pusuk, that verse last night. That is to say that the matter of knowing God, not only knowing Him with knowledge, but with comprehension, and not merely as a matter of belief. Belief versus knowledge. That it will engulf and overtake the very existence of all humanity to the, to the extent that this will indeed become our very mode of existence. This is an important distinction between Judaism and those who want to follow Torah and the rest of the world's religions. We see throughout the Tanakh the command that we are to know God. I talked about that as well. That became a really powerful concept for me now. I mean, I'm spending almost all my time studying this concept of knowledge. I'm past the belief and knowledge stage. I'm now in the knowledge and wisdom stage. To me, we have to make a distinction now between knowledge and wisdom because you can know something and not have wisdom about it. There are a lot of people that have head knowledge that can speak a lot of things, but they have no wisdom. Um, and this is something that we're trying to learn. Uh, Rabbi Katz and myself, when we learn together, it's not just about knowledge for us. We're saying, what is the wisdom of the thing we're learning? What is, what is it that we're learning about in a practical level so that then we can impart that wisdom? It's that same idea of receiving shefa, receiving flow from above to be vessels of light, not just to be vessels of knowledge, Oh, look, look at how great I am. Look at how much I know. It's about being able to impart that and empty yourself again so that you can be filled up again and empty yourself again and be filled up again. Reason would dictate that at least a foretaste and an example of this phenomenon should also exist now in our time. Like I said, that we shouldn't have to wait until the end. In other words, even now, during the time of the exile, or what we call the devout, the, 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 um, um, some people call the, the diaspora or the gullus, the galut, you know, that we live in the exile. And the exile of the divine presence of God. It's taught in Judaism that the Shekhinah that we talked about, the divine presence, is actually an exile as well. Um, as a result of uh, activity, that the study of Torah is so important, is so immense um, for both the Jewish nation and for the nations of the world to bring redemption. In our discussion of the Torah portion, Tetzaveh, last night, we spoke about different components of the temple and the priestly garments, and we alluded to this next concept. There's a passage brought in the Talmud that says, from whence do we know that even a Gentile and I don't like that term, but they use it, so I'm saying it, so don't throw tomatoes at me. From whence do we know that even a Gentile who is preoccupied with Torah is likened to the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest who served in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem? As it's written that a man should do them, the commandments live by them, the Kohanites, the Levites, and Israelites are not mentioned here, but rather the term used by the verse is man. Okay? It says, man, I want you to get that. That may be something that people pass by, but usually when we're hearing these concepts, it talks about creature, it talks about man. It doesn't say Jew. We thus learn that even 
the non-Jew who is engaged in the study of Torah and the fulfillment of the Ger slash Noahide laws, which includes more than just the Sheva Mitzvot, is likened unto the Kohen Agadol, the high priest. This is not in contradiction with that which we find elsewhere in the Talmud, that the person who's a non-Jew who is preoccupied with Torah is obligated with the death penalty. This is why it's so important to not just take simple verses from the Talmud, like so many people did before in their previous life, taking sync. I, I call them the Henny Youngmans of Christianity. Anybody remember Henny Youngman, the comedian? He would say, take my wife, please. I say, take my verse, please. You know, because that's what they like. You can't take one verse of the Tanakh, the Torah, the New Testament, any book, and, and build a theology off of it. And you certainly can't do that in the Talmud. Why? Because most people that quote the Talmud don't speak Aramaic. And the same way that I told you that English can't always explain to you what the Tanakh is trying to say in the English, certainly an English translation of the Talmud is not going to impart what the Aramaic is. And if you're not looking at what the Mishnah is, the law that's being spoken about in context, so you know why the rabbis are having the argument, what's the point of giving me a verse that says, oh, if they study Torah, they are subject to the death penalty? Even the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory explains that the obligation of Torah study upon the B'nai Noach is not restricted to the realm of practical halacha, but rather should also include the study of Torah for its own sake. Remember I mentioned that, Torah lishma, Torah for its own sake, in order to acquire a breadth of Torah knowledge to enhance one's knowledge of God. This is the Lubavitcher Rebbe that says this. Now he goes on in later teachings to kind of just hammer home the Sheva Mitzvot. So he got half a gear. The Chabad people that are watching this that see this video are not going to be happy <laughs> with what I just said. But I think the Rebbe got gear. But a lot of times we, we do things and we say things out of taking a step back and not wanting to go too far off of the path that we're on. Um, it's difficult. I, I often have to fight that fear myself when I stand in front of a camera and give a presentation like this and say, how far can I go as an Orthodox Jew? Um, am I going to be you know, separating myself from the community by going too far? So we have to remember that sometimes when these great people like the Rebbe of blessed memory, who was a great tzaddik, a great Talmud Chacham, said the things that he said, we also have to take everything in context. And, and the same way that the Talmud says one thing here and another thing there, doesn't mean that because the Rebbe said something here and said something else there, that it's a contradiction in terms. Torah Lishma, Torah study for its own sake, is indeed applicable to the B'nai Noach or to the Ger, this is what the Rebbe said, and is also their privilege and obligation similar to the obligation incumbent upon the nation of Israel. This is not me saying this, this is the Lubavitcher Rebbe saying this. So when we ask the question about where is the free will, we can now answer this question. Hashem 
does in fact place the hand of a person on the best portion of life. How does he do this? By giving us a life of contentment and delight right in the middle of a material life, right in the middle of a life of physicality that is unfortunately filled with pain and suffering. It is. So the matter of free choice involves only this question. To what extent are we prepared to strengthen ourselves? There is no question that much work has to go into purifying our own will. For one purpose alone. For the purpose of what? You should be able to answer this already. For fulfilling the Torah and mitzvot that are assigned to us in the proper way. Not just fulfilling it, but doing it in the right way. And not for the sake of obtaining benefit. This is what's amazing about the Sulam. The Sulam talks about this and says, Torah lishma, Torah for its own sake, should not be done expecting merit. Every one of you sitting here have heard that. Because Judaism teaches you as a non-Jew, well, if you're going to do the mitzvot, don't expect to do it for merit. You should do it for one reason and one reason alone, to bring pleasure to the Creator. And, and most people don't even say that to you. But when that Jewish person says to you, why do you do what you do? Why are you trying to keep the mitzvot? Why are you trying to do more than the Sheva mitzvot? Every ger will say the same thing. Because I love Hashem. Because I want to bring pleasure to my Creator. And the Sulam, one of the greatest Kabbalists of our time, said the same thing to the Jewish people. Torah lishma, Torah for its own sake, should not be done to obtain merit. It should be done for one reason and one reason alone, to bring pleasure to the Creator. And I said, the Sulam got ger. He summed up ger right there, talking to the Jewish people. Don't do it for merit. Do it to bring pleasure to the Creator. So in this way, my friends, we're all Garen, as I, as I mentioned earlier. This, my friends, is the perfect definition of Torah Lishma, Torah for its own sake. This comes from Rebbe Meir, one of the commentators on the, in the Gemara. He describes this as follows. He says, whoever labors in Torah for its own sake merits many things. And not only that, but the whole world is indebted to him. He is called friend, beloved, a lover of God, a lover of mankind. Humility enclothes him as does reverence. He is fit to be righteous, pious, honest, and faithful. It keeps him far from sin and draws him near to purity. Through him, the world can benefit from counsel, sound knowledge, understanding, and strength. As it is said, counsel is mine. And sound knowledge, understanding is mine, and strength is mine from Proverbs 8.14. He goes on to say it gives him sovereignty and governance and discerning judgment. The secrets of Torah are revealed to him. The secrets of Torah are revealed to him. And he becomes like a flowing fountain that never stops, like a river that increases its flow. He is modest, long-suffering, forgiving of insult, and is magnified by Torah and exalted above all things. Quite a description for the person who does Torah Lishma. This is Rebbe Meir's explanation. 
And again, he doesn't say Torah Lishma for the Jew. He says for the man that does this. Now everybody will say it's for the Jew, but I'm telling you that you're a creature of God. And this includes you. It is the person that the Kabbalists were referring to when they said such a person is the one who is spoken of in Scripture. Taste and see that Hashem is good. If we return to the concept of the role of the Ger being like the high priest, we see that there is another role that, be, get, that can be fulfilled by the Ger that can assist in bringing redemption. And not only bringing redemption, but bringing it sweetly, as we talked about. The high priest's role in the time of the first and second temples in Yerushalayim included the Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement service, every year spoken of in Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. And part of this service required the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies on the Temple Mount and to attain atonement for the entire nation of Israel and for the entire world. Can we therefore then infer that even one single righteous gear is capable of achieving atonement both for himself and even for the entire world by virtue of his sincere, genuine service to Hashem? As it is written, the Torah was commanded to us by Moshe in inheritance for us and not for them. In the one case, the Talmud is referring to a preoccupation with the seven commandments, with the Sheva Mitzvot, with the legislature concerning those seven commandments in order to become an expert in them. We may also add that involvement of the nations of the world in Torah should not only be in order to know the action that they should do, serving as means of preparation for fulfillment of their commandments for strictly utilitarian purposes. What do I mean? The question also need not be asked, why is the Torah study, why this Torah study was not counted among the enumeration of their seven mitzvahs? The reason for this is provided in the Talmud. The positive commandments were not enumerated just as the mitzvah of tzedakah was not enumerated. We, we talked about this. Rabbi Katz and Rod and I were talking about this yesterday on the phone. It wasn't enumerated among the Sheva Mitzvot, the idea of tzedakah. Do you think that somehow that you're released from that as a ger, from giving charity, from giving tzedakah, and yet there's nothing in the Sheva Mitzvot that says anything about tzedakah? The Holy Mary, in his commentary, given over by Professor Chaim Soloveitchik on the Mary's work. And just to give you an idea who the Mary was, he is uh, the only medieval Talmudist or a Rishon, Rishon or the Rishonim are the first ones, whose works can be read almost independently of the Talmud text. This is Professor Chaim Soloveitchik talking about him upon which it ostensibly comments on his work, the Beit Behera, is not a running commentary on the Talmud. Mary is a quasi-Mamodian fashion, intentionally omits um, the give and take, the sugya. The sugya is a, sugya means a distinct matter for consideration or discussion in Talmudic thought. 
He focuses rather, this is speaking of the Mary, on the final upshot of the discussion and presents the differing, differing views of that upshot and conclusion. Also, he alone, and again intentionally, provides the reader with background information. His writings are the closest things to a secondary source in the library of the Rishonim, in the first ones. Now, the interesting thing about the Mary, and Rabbi Katz te teaches about the Mary as well, is noted for its position in the status of the non-Jew and Jewish law, asserting that discriminatory laws and statements found in the Talmud only applied to the idolatrous nations of old. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that when it's discussing the non-Jew and the non-Jew related to these laws, the Mary is saying that when they said things like, that person that tries to take on Torah is obligated to the death penalty, is referring to those people who are still idolaters that were trying to do this. In many ways, this is spoken of, this would relate to some of the modern day people that say that they're not Christians, that are still Christians, that walk around with kippah and tzitzit and say they're keeping Torah. This is who the Talmud was talking about. Many of those opposing the non-Jew learning Torah is referring to a non-Jew whose intent in learning Torah is specifically to distort that which he learns for an ulterior motive or agenda, such as, for example, to use this knowledge to promote another religion or agenda. This is not me saying this. This is the Mary saying this. Imagine when he wrote this. He's talking about people today, and he's talking about people in that day. A religion or agenda aside from Judaism, and not genuinely for the sake of heaven. Torah lishma, Torah for its own sake. Tzedakah literally translates as righteousness. The common term in English for this concept, however, is called charity. And the difference between charity and tzedakah, as is explained by the Rebbe, is that charity implies that the rich man is generously giving of his lot to the poor man. Tzedakah, on the other hand, implies that the rich man recognizes the fact that Hashem has bestowed upon him this wealth, whether it be monetary or some other form of wealth, for the explicit purpose that he should share it with the poor man. It's that connection back and forth. Rich man, poor man, copper and gold we talked about last night. Everything is for unification and thereby do what? Fulfill the divine will of God. This is therefore an act of righteousness rather than being merely an act of generosity. There's a lot of people that think that tzedakah is something that they need to do in order to be generous. And it's not. I give tzedakah to people in spot because I'm commanded to. If God loves me so much that he contracted himself, that he placed the upper and lower worlds within me and placed himself within me, and he's generous, okay, how can I not be? How can I not be 
um, righteous and show loving kindness um, by withholding that? How can I just think, well, I'm going to be generous today. I got some money in my pocket. So I'm talking about the difference in the, the, the difference in the description of generosity for the sake of an agenda and generosity displaying the attribute of Hashem. Understand the difference when I say, when I use generous in both terms. Ask a religious Jew how he is, and likely he's going to say, Baruch Hashem. Now, we have a joke about that. In Israel, yeah, everybody says that. People ask, how are you? Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. You know, in Israel, the joke is that you can't tell anybody anything past Baruch Hashem. You start telling people your troubles, they think you're a nebuch. You know, it's like, what, you actually think I wanted to know how you're doing? <laughs> you know, you have to understand the Israeli culture. So it's very funny. It's like, so when somebody says, hey, Yitzchak, how are you? Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, bless God. You know, bless the name. Oh, I got such a pain in my back. Ah, it's good seeing you, Yitzchak, you know. <laughs> I, didn't have, I didn't really want to know how you're doing. I just, you know, wanted to hear you, hear you say Baruch Hashem. In Jewish law, the names of God are considered to be holy and therefore must be afforded careful respect. That's why people ask me, how come you always do G-D and how come you write it like this? You know, there's a verse in Devarim that says, and when you go into the land, you shall tear down their asherim and tear down their idols and crush them and everything else. And then the very next thing it says, but you shall not do the same to Hashem your God. And it's from that verse where it says, destroy their name, destroy their ashram, destroy their poles, destroy their idols, but do not do, not do the same thing to Hashem your God, is where we get the concept of writing G-D, of not destroying the name of God. And this is why we, we keep it reverence, because if I write, the, now his, God is not his name, we know that, but there's such a reverence for it that I'm not going to take a chance that if I write his name, if I was to write Yudke Vavke out on something and potentially give it to you and then you treat it in an improper way and you're cleaning your desk one day, oh, that's that thing Ira gave me, that's not that important. Then you take it and you throw it in the garbage. Do you realize what you've done? You've taken the very holy name of God and destroyed it and thrown it in the garbage and yet he gives us command, do not do the same thing that I'm telling you to do to their idols. Do not do the same thing to Hashem, your God. For this reason, the most common term for referring to God in Hebrew language is Hashem, literally meaning the name. This is an indirect manner of referring to the most holy and ineffable name of God that is indeed so holy that we're not indeed allowed or commanded or permitted to pronounce it at all. This activity of the Jewish people, my people, will serve as an activity of refinement and purification. It's taught in the limbs of the body that will then be used and utilized to fulfill the mitzvot. And the activities of Israel to exert this influence upon the nations of the world in the same way. To be involved with the halakha, to be involved with the mitzvot, to be involved with the commandments of God. The nations of the world are compared to the limbs of the body of the human race, while the Jewish nation are compared to the heart and the brain. This is one of the teachings in Judaism. 
Halacha is the Hebrew term denoting Torah law. The word Halacha shares the Hebrew root with the word Holech, to walk. Because one who knows the Torah of God, the law of God, becomes thereby empowered to walk with God in this world. At the beginning, we discussed the following question that one often asks themselves as it relates to Kabbalah. Didn't the sages of Judaism already decide that before studying Kabbalah, a person must fill, first fill his belly with Talmud and Jewish law? The truth is that one cannot go to one extreme or the other. One cannot simply study for the sake of study. And one cannot dismiss one part of learning over another. One must first understand what Kabbalah is and whether it is something like Torah that they are doing for selfishness or for merit rather than for bringing pleasure to the Creator alone. And when we discussed just a minute ago the concept of Baruch Hashem and the reverence of God's name, we have to understand that the revealed wisdom of the Kabbalah is all clothed in the names of God. However, the truth is that if one can say, I can fulfill the study of Torah and practice the mitzvot in full for its own sake, only in order to give pleasure to the Creator, then you have no need for the revealed wisdom of Kabbalah. Somebody could say that. Most of us, if we're honest, while we have good intentions, often do or do not do Torah for its own sake. We have the intention good intentions, but there is hope because we're taught by the sages that one can do Torah not for its own sake if our desire is to move to Torah lishma for its own sake. You need to be aware that there are two levels. There are two levels. There is the secrets of Torah and there is what is called ta'ame Torah, reasons of Torah. And this is the distinction that's made between those two are between the Sephirot in the Eitz Chaim, the Tree of Life, the upper three being Keter, Chochmah, and Bina, crown, wisdom, and understanding, and the lower being Chesed, Gevurah, Teferet, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, and Malchut. The top three are the head, and the lower are the body. A better definition of ta'ameh, because they translate it as reasons of Torah, and we talked about the intentions of Torah. Ta'am, in Hebrew, means taste. Ta'ameh, tastes of Torah. And isn't that interesting in light of something that we learned at the very beginning from the Kabbalist? Taste and see that Hashem is good. Everything is about light. Everything is about illumination. If in Kabbalah, we're looking for the flow of light, Shefa, flow of light from the upper Sephirot, from, from Keter, and Chochmah, and Bina, to flow down as we reach up and how do we reach up? We reach up through the Torah and through mitzvot. The whole purpose of reaching up is to receive light. 
to be vessels. This is why I don't mind repeating over and over again. These are important concepts. To receive light, not for ourselves, not to merit something, but to give out the light that we receive, to illuminate out to the world. In this way, not only do we taste and see that Hashem is good, but as we're able to connect with God, the God of everybody that we talked about, in the correct manner, moving from doing Torah not for its own sake to doing Torah lishma, Torah for its own sake, looking to bring, pre- looking to bring pleasure only to the Creator, then we'll see the fulfillment of the knowledge of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we will be both Jew, non-Jew, Gare, Noahide, or whatever else you want to call yourself today. Partners in bringing redemption and bringing Mashiach soon and speedily in our days.